Oh, that's Peter Gabriel with the classic In Your Eyes. I'm telling you, the 80s had such great music. Well, in this episode, the tie-in to Peter Gabriel. No, I don't own any rights to that song or any royalties, so relax. But we are going to talk about something that does get in your eyes. Actually, not in your eyes. The eyes of every baby that you deliver. Is that a weak tie-in or what? We're going to be talking about universal prophylaxis against ophthalmia neonatorum. Yep, right now it's the standard in the U.S. with an opt-out option for patients who don't want to participate. But over the last really about three to four years, there's been a lot of debate with this. Should we still do this universally for every single baby in the U.S.? Or should we take a more targeted approach? It's an interesting debate. And before you think, well, what does this have to do with OBGYN? I mean, we're not pediatricians. That's absolutely right. But patients will ask us this as they're getting ready to deliver. So let me pose this question to you. If you have a parent, a couple who's monogamous, extremely low risk, GC and chlamydia PCR are negative, no past S history of STIs, and they say, you know, I, I don't think I, I want to do that. Is that okay? Or would you talk them into it? Well, in this episode, we're going to get into the data and cover the facts. Here we go. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Oh my goodness. I remember doing like one of those call in into the radio dedications to... Uh, my then high school girlfriend about In Your Eyes, and I waited forever, to, and they never played the daggone song. I still remember that. Oh, uh, darn local radio stations. Okay, back to this idea of universal ophthalmia neonatorum prophylaxis. Man, I'm telling you, I mean, there's some published controversies here, some published commentaries that uh, are saying, hey, we're contributing potentially to some uh, antibiotic resistance, and Neisseria has already got issues. Wow. Um, it's really deep, and I know what you're thinking. Man, it's in the eye. I mean, how much resistance you're going to be causing? No, it's out there. It's actually a valid discussion right now uh, among the ID slash microbiology peeps. So let's get into this. And, and again, I'm going to present this very fairly. I'm going to give you the pro, which is, hey, every kid should get this. And then the con. And out of the con part uh, came a recent publication that just came out not long ago in May 2023 that kind of is, is well, it, it makes a good argument uh, why we shouldn't be doing that. All right, let's get into, into the main idea here. 
the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and ACOG, and the WHO all recommend universal topical ocular prophylaxis to prevent gonococcal ophthalmia neonatorum. Now, you can stop right there. You're like, well, so what's the debate? I mean, you got the CDC, the AAP, ACOG, uh, WHO. Okay, I get that. Well, it gets deeper than that. So just hold on, because especially as we're talking about our our sister uh, discipline of pediatrics, while they say, hey, we should do this, at the same time, they kind of point their head to the side and go, well, except for these kind of conditions. So it's kind of double speech, and I'm going to explain in this episode, okay? In the U.S., ophthalmia neonatorum caused by Neisseria has an incidence of 0.3 per 1,000 live births. 0.3, okay? So you see the catch there? We're trying to prevent gonococcal ophthalmia neonatorum, which we should, by the way, I'm I'm definitely not against that, but it's at a 0.3 per 1,000 live births, so everybody gets that. Interesting, right? Meanwhile, chlamydia trachomatis represents 8 per 1,000 cases of ophthalmia neonatorum. And if you're thinking, oh, well, then there you go. It's 8 per 1,000 for chlamydia in the eyeballs. We should give the medicine. Yeah, but remember, that's not what erythromycin is for. Erythromycin is for treatment or prevention, rather, of gonococcal infection, not chlamydial. So that's not even working for that. And if you didn't learn that in your OBGYN residency, uh, MP class or PA class, uh, well, that's this really is the legit argument, is that uh, it only works for Neisseria. The way that you prevent uh, transmission of chlamydia into the baby's eyeballs at time of birth is treating the mom, identifying the mother. And this is one of the complaints here, which we're going to dive into in a lot more details in just a minute. Even though doing this universal prophylaxis is the standard for us here in the States, this prophylaxis is not a uniform global stance. The Canadian Pediatric Society recommends against universal prophylaxis. And several European countries, including Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and the United Kingdom, no longer require universal prophylaxis. Instead, they have opted for a prevention strategy of increasing screening and treatment of pregnant women and or of selective or targeted use in those that were delivered without pregnancy testing. But wait, it gets even more slightly confusing because according to a 2022 publication from the American Academy of Pediatrics here in the U.S., the AAP has taken the position that the need for legal mandates for ocular prophylaxis should be, quote, re-examined, end quote, and instead advocates for states to adopt strategies to prevent ophthalmia neotorum by focusing on maternal treatment, like increased compliance with CDC recommendations for prenatal screening and treatment of both Neisseria gonorrhea and chlamydia trachomatis during the antepartum period. Of course, the big gap with that is that patients have to present for antepartum care. And like in our population, we've got a large amount of patients who just drop in uh, for delivery uh, or they come in uh, literally from another country and are just ready to deliver. And we don't have any of that information yet, which just goes to show nothing is perfect. This was also the subject of a recent review published in May of 2023, like we said in the intro, and that article title is exactly what we're covering here. Listen to this title, quote, 
neonatal ocular prophylaxis in the United States. Is it still necessary? End quote. We're going to get into what they said a little bit later on, but you see how this is being talked about. Remember, this was May 2023, and as point of reference, we're doing this on October the 14th, 2023. So if this is all a little bit confusing, don't worry. We're going to cover all of this information in a lot more detail. So here's the big question that we're going to lead off with. Can erythromycin ophthalmic application be avoided in some cases? And is that safe? And if so, doesn't that conflict with the current U.S. neonatal care expectations? Well, we're going to cover all of that coming up in just a moment. Yeah, this is definitely an interesting topic for sure. And even though we're going to present the pros and the cons, here really is the the take-home message before we even cover any of the data, okay? And it's this. Even though we try to take care of, do the best that we can for our patients, we try to take care of them, and even though it's supposed to be a partnership, right, we're in this, we're on the same team, we're on the same side, sometimes things in medicine are still very paternalistic, like, you've got to get this or else you're wrong. And and we can do a lot of uh, inadvertent, a lot of accidental, subconscious patient shaming for that. Uh, This was interesting because this whole idea for this episode came from one of our podcast family members who said, hey, uh, what is the data on on avoiding this uh, ocular prophylaxis? Because uh, this family member said, uh, hey, I'm I'm, I'm pregnant myself. I'm going to be delivering. And and I don't know if my baby actually needs that. Uh, Can you cover that? So this is where this idea came from. Plus, honestly, it was about Oh, two, three years ago or so that I received a message from one of my friends in another city who was a healthcare provider, not in women's healthcare, but another healthcare provider uh, who, who delivered in one of the hospitals in Dallas. And, you know, monogamous couple, low risk, uh, no STI history, all PCR tests were negative during pregnancy. And she told the uh, pediatric team caring for her child said, you know, I, I think we're going to we're going to X nay the, the eye op- option. We just don't need that. We don't need the, the medication, in the child's eye. It's just not necessary. Uh, and which is OK. Right. You can opt out. Texas law says you can opt out of that. But here's where this became really personal. And, and that was like, wow, it's it kind of a mirror to my own face. Right. As she said, and and. Hector, you'd be, you'd be surprised. I mean, uh, it, it's like I told them, uh, you know, that you're, they're never going to feed the child. Like, it was just something, like, s- completely absurd. Uh, like, just the idea that they decided to opt out was, uh, like, just asinine. And they made them feel so bad, is is this message that she was telling me. It's like, I, I felt like uh, a, a bad parent because I didn't want this for my child when I knew it probably didn't need it. Uh, and there was a lot of shaming going on, and she started to cry. And so the point is, she was asking, "Hey, did I do something wrong? You, as a women's healthcare provider, you know, you deal with this for yeah, as you deliver children. What do you think?" And I said, "Hey, I know both of you. Uh, you and your husband. You're low risk. I don't have any issues. I don't have any concerns. Don't get it." Uh, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. So that really should be the take home, right? Because we're going to meet in the middle and it's all about shared decision making. But I think uh, a lot of the times when we, uh, you know, just take things for granted, this is what you do. And if a patient says no, knowing that they can have informed refusal, right? That's okay. They they are 
totally okay to make their own decision as long as they understand the risks and benefits and they're of sound mind. That's all. But but a lot of the times we, we get with this idea, no, you have to do it or you're a bad person or a, a, a bad parent. And, and that's absolutely wrong. Same thing goes for breastfeeding. Hey, I'm a big breastfeeding advocate. I think it's absolutely helpful. Even some of the rules for breastfeeding in the U.S. are getting a little loosey-goosey. Like the historic norm is HIV and pregnancy. You cannot, you can't breastfeed. That's a, that's a no-go in the U.S. Other parts of the world are like, that's okay. Unless there's, you know, bleeding nipples. But even a CDC is starting to say, hey, you know what? We, we really got, got to push breastfeeding. It's so advantageous. So if your viral load is negative... Uh, what is there to transmit? I mean, it's not detectable. You can't transmit something that's not detected. So even that right now is in the process uh, of being uh, looked at and being reworded. Uh, the point is, is that things that we took as dogma one way, you must do this or else you're wrong. You must get this in your baby's eyes or else you're wrong uh, is softening because things are open for debate and discussion. Now, before we get into the pros and the cons, right, both sides, because I'm going to give you both sides in detail, let's be very clear, because I am not going against the standard recommendation in the U.S. and from the CDC, which is right now, urethromycin eye ointment is the current standard of care that every child should be getting universally. Okay, now there is a parent opt-out option, but otherwise it defaults to universal. But what I'm going to present here is that may be outdated, okay? And there's good evidence that says that. And remember, uh, either the our entire country is absolutely right and every country is ab- who's not doing it is absolutely wrong, or once again, there's room for debate because as we mentioned the, uh, in the intro, there are countries who have abandoned this, okay? And I think it was just last month in September, a, a review out of Italy said, hey, we stopped doing this thing and guess what? Nothing really happened. I mean, if we just do targeted screening instead of universal screening, uh, th- th- there was no difference in terms of neonatal uh, ophthalmia neonatorum. So to be very clear, I'm not saying not to do this at all. My th- point of discussion for your consideration is that maybe rather than do it for everybody, just do it for those who really need it. And there's some advantage to that. So in case you can't figure it out, yes, I'm indefinitely in the camp of targeted screening. I mean, why are we just giving antibiotics willy-nilly to everybody to begin with? Because you got to understand the history of that. And yes, I'm going to tell you that because it's super important. Um, But that's now actually kind of changed. All right. So just to be clear, I am not saying that to to absolutely kick everything out, we just shouldn't do this at all. I'm not saying that. I'm saying rather than universal application of med, maybe it should be targeted application of ophthalmic med. Yeah, for those of you who hate the history parts of our podcast, fair warning. <laughs> Here comes the history of ophthalmic neonatorum prevention. Um, boy, am I really just hammering that, <laughs> just killing that to the ground? I mean, you see what happens when you complain to me about something. And so for those of you who who missed that episode, if you don't know what we're talking about, um, a few, like a handful 
of people uh, throughout the last several months have said, hey, I love your podcast. That's great. That's good. That's how they soften the blow. And then they say, but man, that history stuff is so boring. Just tell us what we need to know. We don't need to know the whole history. Uh, and it was kind of a sore spot for me because it really just bleh, like like big stab right to me because I like the history thing. And it really led to me questioning, am I doing this right? Is it really boring? Yada, yada. Anyway, uh, and so ever since that, uh, I've just kind of dug my heels in. It's amazing. It's like totally passive aggressive uh, and making sure that I put some history things in there. Sorry, guys, please listen to the show. Please don't abandon me. We need each other. But I think the history is super important. (laughs) So let's get to it. All right. Uh, And it's going to be brief, right? It's going to be super brief. The use of erythromycin eye ointment in newborns has its roots in the late 1800s. How about that? See, that's interesting, right? In and of itself. Back then, about 10% of newborns, that's one out of 10 guys, 10% of newborns born in hospitals across Europe developed the illness called ophthalmia neonatorum. Yep, this goes all the way back to straight, stretches back pre-US because all this can be traced back uh, to European uh, infections of STIs. This illness caused blindness in about 3% of affected infants. Ophthalmia neonatorum, also known as neonatal conjunctivitis, was described as this infection that causes, in, caused infection of the conjunctiva uh, within the first four weeks of life. Yeah, it was back then, all the way back to the late 1800s, where physicians said, hey, something's going on here. They're catching something through the birth canal. Uh, and for years, nobody knew what was going on. But then in 1879, German physician Albert Neiser, all right, that sound familiar? Albert Neiser, like Neisseria. Wow, how cool is that? See, everything, see, that, that's worth the history lesson right there. Neisseria gonorrhea is named after Albert Neiser. He discovered this bacteria called gonorrhea that was causing infection in the children's eyeballs. The following year, another German physician, Karl Crede, introduced a breakthrough treatment to help prevent this infection. Instead of waiting for signs of infection uh, to happen, Crede said we should put silver nitrate solution into the eyes to try to keep this bacteria away from causing damage. And it worked. Of course, silver nitrate's super irritating, and so they got a slight or a minimal chemical conjunctivitis instead of the bacterial conjunctivitis. But silver nitrate solution into the eyeballs was a thing for many, many decades. This, of course, has now been replaced by antibiotics like tetracycline in some parts of the world, uh, chloramphenicol um, in some Latin American countries. But the majority of the medications uh, uses erythromycin and the U.S. uses 0.5% erythromycin, not as drops, but traditionally as an eye ointment. The CDC recommends administration of this 0.5% erythromycin ointment within the first two to three hours of life, but many hospitals aim for even sooner. But this is why things matter, because if you use enough of something, then it potentially can run out. On July the 7th, 2022, the FDA reported a shortage of erythromycin ophthalmic ointment, which again is the only recommended treatment to prevent ophthalmia neonatorum caused by Neisseria gonorrhea. 
If erythromycin ointment is unavailable, infants at risk for exposure to Neisseria gonorrhea, especially those born to mothers who had gonococcal infection but didn't have appropriate treatment, then you have to give them systemic treatment. That's ceftriaxone, 25 to 50 milligrams per kilo body weight, and that can be given either IV or IM, but it's not to exceed 250 milligrams in a single dose, right? So 25 to 50 mg per kilo, IV or IM not to exceed 250 as systemic therapy. This is according to the CDC drug notification that was given at that time. See, everything goes through sort of shortage, guys, right? Recently, I, d- I just did last week a interview for The Guardian. That should be coming out soon. Uh, Guardian US about the bicillin shortage. I mean, every, we've had shortage of amoxicillin, oxytocin for a while, uh, and then erythromycin, ophthalmic solution. I mean, my goodness, it's just stuff happens. And so this is what's getting people to think. Uh, why don't we just use this more selectively so that we can really not be so wasteful for medications that can and do go in short supply? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I told you that we were going to cover the pros and the cons of this, and I'm going to give you good, solid arguments for both sides, okay? Uh, and then I'll give you my final stance, which I guess you could guess by now that I favor a targeted approach, but it's going to make sense as we get to the end, all right? But you come, you do you, I do me, you do you, and then you come up with your own decision once I give you the fair and balanced both sides of the argument, okay? So let's start with the pro side of the argument. The pro side means, yes, we're not going to change. We're going to give it to everybody. Dagnabbit, everybody, every kid that comes out is going to get squirted thing in the eyeball. Okay, no worries. Let's hear about it. So here's a reality of things, okay? While Neisseria gonorrhea gets blamed for ophthalmia neonatorum because it is the likely pathogen. Neisseria is super virulent, causes a lot of inflammation. That's why... Uh, it's much worse to get gonorrhea as a pelvic infection because it causes a lot of damage very quickly, whereas chlamydia has its own problems because it's much more uh, indolent, it's much more under the radar, so it does damage a lot more slowly, but nonetheless, both cause damages, right? We get that. Um, but while gonorrhea gets thrown under the bus for ophthalmia neonatorum, and rightfully so, there are potentially other common vaginal residents that can also affect the child's eye. Yes, it's not that common, but it has been reported that other bacteria 
can cause the same condition about 30% of the time. Okay, so listen up. This is scary, right? So in the vagina, Staph aureus lives there. Strep pneumo, Haemophilus influenzae, group A and B strep, Cornibacterium species, uh, Moraxella, E. coli, Klebsiella pneumoniae. All of those things live in the vagina and they all have the potential, though not to the same degree as gonorrhea, of getting into the kid's eyeball. Okay, now it's true. When was the last time that you had a kid who had an infection in the eye from E. coli from vaginal delivery? I mean, let's let's be honest. It's very, very small. But just to be fair and balanced, it is true. If you ever asked to say you're practicing for the oral boards, what causes ophthalmoneonatorum? Ah, well, the big offender uh, is gonorrhea. But uh, it's now been surpassed, of course, by chlamydia which you can't really treat that with erythromycin optical. You've got to either give the child uh, medication systemically or ideally identify it in the mother before delivery. So while those STIs are the big ones and the numbers, based on the numbers, chlamydia wins at about eight per thousand, uh, there are other vaginal pathogens that could possibly do it. So if you have the whole bag of ophthalmoneonatorum, about 30% of that may be caused by normal vaginal pathogens, all right? So that's one of the issues here. See, I'm telling you, it's a good argument to, to get it universally. And these bacteria, of course, can be picked up during regular delivery or from just being around the hospital or from home exposures. Uh, that's why people who touch the baby are supposed to wash their hands. You see, there's other ways to get that. And that's one of the arguments for universal prophylaxis. And that makes sense, right? And here's a good clinical pearl. Ophthalmoneonatorum caused by Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which can be found again in community surfaces, especially in the hospital, in some reports can be just as bad as Ophthalmoneonatorum from gonorrhea. And so if you give this thing in the eye and because of some residence time uh, and some protection of the uh, antimicrobial into the ocular space, the idea is that the child can be protected. So, yes, we're trying to protect the baby with erythromycin against gonorrhea, gonococcal ophthalmia. But there are some other bacteria that potentially could be kept at bay by universal prophylaxis. Huh? Makes sense, right? So basically, the argument for universal, the pro side is, look, um, what can it hurt? Outside, maybe a little bit of eye irritation. Uh, and it could possibly help prevent not just a gonorrheal infection, but infection of all the other things that the baby could have as it passes down the vagina. Yeah, even though that's not very common. But why not give it, right? Okay, that, everybody can agree that makes sense. There's nothing wrong with that argument. But now let's get on to the con side, the against universal treatment. Um, the con side is a lot more interesting. The only way for a newborn to contract ophthalmoneonatorum that's caused by gonorrhea or from chlamydia is if the mother has untreated infection at time of giving delivery and mainly vaginal birth, right? Now, of newborns born to mothers with untreated gonorrhea, then between one in two to one in three of them do risk getting gonorrheal infection in the eye. Okay, so it is real. So if mom has untreated gonorrhea or unknown results, one in two to one in three, so anywhere from 33% up to 50% can have ocular infection. That doesn't mean it's going to be all the way progressive to ophthalmoneonatorum, but can have infection of the eye with gonorrhea. 
okay? And the gonorrhea is a bad one because that can lead to a lot of scarring due to the inflammation and blindness, okay? So left untreated, no one is questioning that gonorrheal or gonococcal ophthalmoneonatorum is bad, and it can do it quickly, okay? The reason that the CDC says try to get that thing in the baby's eyeball for two to three hours in the first two to three hours or so is because this inflammation can happen very quick and within 24 hours can cause a lot of destruction and a lot of mucousy discharge from the baby's eye okay now the risk of a newborn getting chlamydia from an infected mother uh is also pretty high it's anywhere from eight percent to up to about 45 percent but but the best estimates kind of split that in the middle and say really it's around 15 or 20 percent Chlamydia has a low risk of blindness, but can still cause a lot of ocular damage. And it's a lot more rare to get complete vision loss from chlamydia than it is for gonorrhea. Why? Because as we mentioned just a while ago, remember, gonorrhea causes a very virulent type of inflammation. And here's this clinical pearl once again that is on the con side is what's more common? Neisseria infection of the eye or chlamydia? It's chlamydia. Well, ophthalmic erythromycin is only for gonococcal prevention. It doesn't do anything for chlamydia. So we're giving the wrong medicine for the wrong bacteria. Isn't that interesting? Okay. Now, this was again reinforced in a 2021 publication in BMC, which is infectious disease. And the first listed author is Smith Norowitz. So the short of it is, before we move on to the whole resistance thing, is that those raising questions about universal use state that if the mother is at low risk in a monogamous relationship and has tested negative for these pathogens, then the risk of ophthalmoneonatorum is extremely low, and they are 100% correct about that. The other time when universal application may not be warranted is in the case of elective C-section with intact amniotic sac in a patient who has also screened negative and is in that low-risk monogamous relationship. I mean, that doesn't even make any sense, right? Hey, you have a scheduled section, your bag of water is intact, your PCR is negative, monogamous relationship. Why are we putting stuff in that baby's eye anyway? I mean, that doesn't make sense to me. But again, all of those criteria should be met. Not ruptured, elective C-section, PCR negative, monogamous relationship. And as I mentioned, the other point in the con argument has to do with the high rate of bacterial resistance uh, to erythromycin to begin with. Gonorrhea, the primary target of ophthalmoneonatorum prevention campaigns, is also becoming resistant to erythromycin. Erythromycin is not 100% effective at preventing gonococcal ophthalmoneonatorum. It has a failure rate, according to published data, of up to 20% in the past, and it may be even higher now because of growing resistance. And erythromycin is just not an effective preventing agent, remember this, against chlamydial infection. So these are all on the con side of universal, favoring a targeted approach. Now, that makes sense to me, and I'm not crazy, guys, because remember, I led into this in the intro. It also is reflected in a commentary by the AAP from 2022, from last year. Now, I know I said the current stance right now is AAP, ACOG, CDC, right? Everyone's in favor of Universal. But AAP also talks a little bit off to the side as well, because it does take this position that, quote, the need for legal mandates for ocular prophylaxis should be reexamined and instead advocate for states to adopt strategies to prevent ophthalmoneonatorum 
like increased compliance with the CDC recommendations for prenatal screening and treatment of Neisseria and chlamydia antepartum, end quote. So it does actually say that, look, while we get it, Universal has, has a place at times. However, because of these new issues popping up, maybe we should focus on targeted. So yes, AAP does recognize that there is a role for targeted screening as well. And this is not a new debate. An article from 2015 out of Canada sprinkled fuel on this fire with its online article titled, quote, Ineffective, Outdated, and Unethical, <laughs> The Case Against Antibiotic Eye Drops for Newborns, end quote. So just to be clear, not U.S., it's Canadian, but do you hear that title? Ineffective, Outdated, and Unethical. Wow, right? So as stated in that commentary, they go on to say, quote, The Canadian Pediatric Society believes that physicians caring for newborns should advocate for the rescinding of these mandatory neonatal ocular prophylaxis laws. It should be more effective to screen all pregnant women for gonorrhea and chlamydia infection and treat and follow up those found to be infected, end quote. In other words, totally in favor of a targeted approach. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's great for Canada, eh? I mean, we're not Canadian. So what does that have to do with us? Well, it has to do a lot because babies are babies. Uh, and yes, even though there's, there's regional and geographic changes to the rates of gonorrhea and chlamydia, that's absolutely true. This stance has also been done here in the U.S. And I'm going to hit you with a big one here as we get ready to close. But before I get to that one from May of 2023... Let me read you this commentary from Contemporary Pediatrics from 2018 because it's exactly what we're saying here in favor of a targeted approach. The authors state, quote, if the mother and her partner are tested and are negative for these diseases and they are in a monogamous relationship, the likelihood that the infant will be affected by this disease is zero, end quote. That's not my statement. They didn't even say like near zero. They said it's zero. (laughs) So consider this as a clinical pearl. If parents are considering not having this medication for their children, then it's absolutely okay as long as those criteria are in place. Monogamous, uh, PCRs, uh, NAT test, whatever is negative, uh, and there's no other history of STIs, then it's absolutely okay to abandon it. That is not my thought. This is actually what's been coming up here again. I told you in the last, oh, I don't know, say, what, three to five years. This was in 2018. The point is not long ago, all right? Now, if you're really worried about it and they're considering not getting it, then maybe swab them at the same time that you're doing a GBS, uh, the typical uh, 36 to 37 and 6, swab them then again. And if they're negative, then as this contemporary pediatrics commentary says, their chance of having the disease is zero. Now, the con side of this debate is also supported by this recent May 2023 publication that I've already alluded to, okay? The article title is, quote, Neonatal Ocular Prophylaxis in the U.S. Is it still necessary? End quote. I mean, how about that? It's exactly what we're talking about here, right? This was in May. So not long ago, just, what, five months ago, uh, this came out in print under the heading Expert Review in the journal Anti-Infective Therapy, all right? Anti-Infective Therapy. Of course, I'll post the link in the reference on this on our reference list. Now, remember this. This is specifically here for the U.S. The title is Neonatal Ocular Prophylaxis in the U.S. Is it still necessary? The short of it is they looked for the evidence. Where is this? Is this just being paternalistic? 
Uh, I mean, it makes sense. Or should we go to a more targeted? And it's not saying not to do it. Okay, it's the same argument here. They're saying is universal prophylaxis evidence-based. Wow, all right? And short of it is, let's just beat to it right here so we can end this episode. Here's what they concluded. Quote, the article addresses the altered epidemiology of ophthalmoneatorum in the U.S. since prophylactic practices began, the lack of data supporting ophthalmic erythromycin for prevention of neonatal gonococcal and chlamydial conjunctivitis, and the impact of prenatal screening and treatment of pregnant women. Well, and as you can guess by the title itself, which is, quote, is it still necessary, end quote, that doesn't leave a lot to the imagination, right, where they're going with this. But the authors concluded, quote, administration of erythromycin ophthalmic ointment for the prevention of neonatal conjunctivitis is not literature supported. Prenatal screening and treatment of pregnant women is the most effective way to prevent ophthalmia neonatorum. And they go on to say, and here it is because we're getting, this is the end, neonatal mandates for prophylaxis should be withdrawn, end quote. Now that's not Canadian, that's not the UK, that's an opinion right here in the U.S. So now that we're at the end, it all comes down to those three little words, shared decision-making, right? It's all about explaining to the patient the risks and the benefits and why this is done. And if they are low-risk monogamous, especially if they're having a C-section and not ruptured, why are we putting that stuff in the baby's eye? It doesn't even make any sense. As we strive to be evidence-based, this commentary from May of 2023 says, um, the evidence is not there. The better way to do it is identifying the mom. So they recommend, hey, if somebody comes in as a drop-in, do it, do, get that vaginal swab. You still got to check for gonorrhea, chlamydia. If you have no idea what this patient has, then treat those. Give those babies that eye medication because you have no idea what's happening. That's not to replace swabbing the vagina. You still swab to get that on record, but you can do targeted treatment instead of universal treatment. So once again, no one is saying not to do it. The the thing for debate is rather than doing it universally, maybe we should do it in a more targeted stance. Now let's bring it home to our typical adage, right? To our typical motto. Is it adage or is it a motto? Did I get those wrong? A saying, whatever. To our back to our typical saying, which is uh can it help and does it hurt? All right, so can it help? I guess. I mean, it's not a firm yes, especially on a universal platform because a lot of patients are going to get it who probably don't need it. And then can it hurt? Well, it depends on how you define hurt. Are we talking about increasing resistance? Are we talking about using medication uh, that may be on short supply? Uh, see how complicated this is. So can it help? Yeah, it can, but maybe not everyone. And can it hurt? Well, while it doesn't actually hurt the child, it may hurt medicine supplies. It may hurt um, resistance uh, down the road. So th- think about that. This is our typical way. Any way you, you, anytime you think about some kind of intervention, remember, can it help and can it hurt? And you see it's not that clear with universal application of this medication uh, at time of all births. Anyway, I hope you found that helpful, at least a point of, of, of debate, a point of discussion, if you will. Uh, so if a patient asks you now, what do you think about not getting it? Well, if you meet these criteria, n- no previous history of STI, GC and chlamydia, and this one is negative. If you're really, really worried about it, remember CDC and ACOG say, then you can do a repeat a swab in the third trimester anyway, or at least at time of GBS. And if all those are negative, um, then you probably don't need it. It's okay to skip that. 
and, and we need to stop the potential inadvertent subconscious patient shaming when somebody says no and we think that they that we know better and they should do what we say it's okay to have informed refusal in the right context All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered the debate between ophthalmia and unitorum, universal application or more targeted approach. I hope you found this helpful. As always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls. 